All right. Welcome to the Rojas Reports Live. It looks like we've got some people in here already joining us. Thank you all so much for being here. And uh, we've got a great guest again. We've got Adam Kehoe. He's not related to Donald Kehoe, if you're aware <laughs> of who Donald is. As all of us UFO nerds know Donald Kehoe well. Uh, worked with uh, NICAP. Not NICAP uh, too early. My brain is not taking it. But anyway, <laughs> one of the early military UFO organizations uh, that was very, very influential uh, when um, the Condon Report and when the Air Force stopped doing everything. But you're not related to Donald Kehoe anyway. I almost wish I was. You know, it would be so, <laughs> so much fun. But yeah, unfortunately, no. Different spelling of the name. That's the biggest question I get when they're like, I saw you at Adam <laughs> Is he related to Donald Kehoe? No. Yeah, Mike, <clears throat> um, so, but Adam does have a PhD in information uh, science, and I know you have a big interest in policy when it comes to defense, and uh, that's something you write quite a bit about, right? Yeah, absolutely. So for the last couple of months, really, I've been writing um, intensively about kind of policy issues around uh, UAP. Um, so, you know, I, I came into this field kind of interested um, to try to think through all of the different possible implications, right? So there's a number of possibilities. Um, you know, some of these things could be foreign adversaries and there's a whole set of policy issues there. Um, there could be mistaken observations and that's important as well. And there's a few of these cases that are really truly strange and it doesn't seem like there's much of an organized policy response. So it's kind of fascinating to look at as a problem kind of at the intersection of technology and intelligence and government um, kind of all of these things all at once. And uh, it's sort of a new puzzle. I mean, it's, it's mm -hmm. we're getting insight into uh, an area of research that the military has been into secretively um, and have successfully really uh, kept the public and apparently Congress in the dark. And so, mm -hmm. uh, you know, which kind of for the conspiracy theorists, you know, there was something there and we don't know. We don't know the extent of the research that has been done by the military in this area. Uh, and we're just beginning to learn that sort of thing. And that'll probably be a lot of what we talk about is that uh, there seems to be, even though we know that they've taken UAP seriously now, there's still a lot of secrecy around what they've done. And uh, they don't seem to want to change that level of transparency at all. I mean, uh, the what we've been getting lately is that things will remain classified in their right. research in these areas, it seems like. Does that seem accurate? Uh, yeah, I think it does. I mean, I, I think this is an incredibly difficult intelligence problem because in order to really look at this, you have to look at the very edge of your knowledge and capabilities. So you've got to simultaneously assess what are the, you know, the best capabilities of our rivals and adversaries and even our peers? What are our own you know, best capabilities? Is it a possibility that we've, someone has an experimental platform that is in the wrong place at the wrong time? Um, and then even if you're looking at the most prosaic thing, which is that it's a case of mistaken observation or whatever, that very quickly gets into vulnerabilities in the sensor layers, you know, of the military, of where there might be problems with radar, where there might be problems in training, uh, 
et cetera. So all of that is really sensitive stuff. And if you have to look at it all together, you're, you're decompartmenting information. You're bringing information that normally would just be in separate parts of the government together. And that's always um, a cause for you know, extreme concern. Uh, because if that program, you know, is um, is penetrated in any meaningful way, then that's essentially a treasure trove uh, for a foreign intelligence service. So mm. before we even get into any of the sort of stranger implications of some of these cases, you know, the kind of more conspiratorial stuff, there's actually like good reason, even if you were only thinking about drones and planes and, you know, radar glitches to be really, really concerned about this stuff and, and to keep it fairly secretive. But as you say, the remarkable thing is that in the last year, amazingly, you know, we're seeing this public discourse about it. We're seeing the Senate Intelligence Committee writing this really amazing request to basically say, you know, we, we demand more or less a, a report on this, a public report unclassified uh, in a relatively short period of time. It's sort of stunning uh, given all of the different, you know, intelligence equities involved. But, you know, nonetheless, here we are. Mm hmm. So two things, a little bit of business first, and then uh, we'll get back into this conversation. Mm -hmm. I do want to let people know that uh, I have made this change where now the Rojas reports uh, live, the live interviews like this one, anybody can join. And then uh, after the interview, after a couple hours, I will make it so just the subscribers can join. And you can see there's a join button here on Open Minds where you can join and subscribe to the archives. Just do that one. I have the Rojas Reports live option there, but like I said, you know, I'm gonna not charge for joining for live anymore. Uh, so just so you know, so welcome and hopefully you can keep joining me. And part of the reason I'm doing this is because Rojas Reports is a moving target and that I never know when I'm gonna get my guest and so it's kind of short notice when I'm going to have people pop in here. But uh, some of you, like Mark and Rodrigo and Renee and Dirk, uh, you seem to be able to be available practically anytime and pop into <laughs> any of these live streams that I pop up. And you're very welcome. Thank you for being here. Uh, the other thing I do want to mention is just uh, getting back to our conversation here is that I, I was able to watch uh, The Phenomenon. Um, which is a great documentary. I highly, highly recommend it. I know you'll really love it, uh, Adam, if you haven't gotten a screener yet. Um, I have not. And what's great about it is that it reviews the history, which will bore maybe some of the you know older UFO nerds, um, but they do it in a great way, a very credible way, and then come into, you know, then bring it into the current affairs. Um, mm -hmm through the presidents, um, into Clinton and Podesta. And then we have, you know, uh, interviews with Chris Mellon, Harry Reid, great interviews, by the way. Uh, and it really demonstrates this truth, which is, and it doesn't include Jimmy Carter. And I do want to mention that as I, I, I did write, post an article from Open Minds Magazine written by my buddy Antonio Huneas about Jimmy Carter when Jimmy Carter tried to get NASA to mm -hmm. uh, to do UFO research. And we'll talk about that. That was excluded from phenomena, but all this other was. And it does show that this is not necessarily an issue that is not something that the military has always been struggling with, but instead kind of more of a PR issue, at least from the surface, the, the things that we know about is, you know, how do they deal with this and how do they deal with the public on this matter? 
And that's what's great is that it really combines things to show that what is going on now is really a continuation of what went on in the 40s and the 50s and the 60s. It's just a new way of dealing with it and kind of this new openness that was mirrors what we had in the beginning. And I don't think that's a problem. And I think that that may be all we left, we're left with in the end in that uh, back then we knew there was an issue. There were uh, UAPs. There were things being seen by the public, by law enforcement, by the military, and it was okay. And the military was trying to figure out what it was. It seems like that was where we've returned to, um, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, but of course it does pose some problems for the military. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the key differences is just that the strategic environment has really changed. So, you know, 20 or 30 years ago, we were, you know, largely in this bipolar world where um, bipolar in terms of the power dynamic between the United States and, and the Soviet Union. Um, and I think there was higher confidence in the, the kind of technological supremacy of the United States. And today we're in a much more multipolar world where, you know, countries like China and Russia are, are increasingly capable and in, in different ways. And I, I think also with the, um, the the proliferation of drone technology too, there's a certain anxiety that, you know, the skies are becoming a little stranger, a little bit more accessible. Um, you know, it, it's not just the B-52 that you're concerned about, right? It's, it's, it's drones and all of these um, sort of strange new technologies and so on. Um, so I think that it is, it is a slightly different environment. And then I think the other new thing in the equation is something like TTSA, uh, which has a few people with, you know, um, really significant government backgrounds uh, kind of coming in and adding their weight and experience to it, uh, which seems to be uh, a new aspect of the dynamic. Um, but you're right. I mean, there, there's a long history and not just of people being interested in the subject, but also the government having varying levels of response to it and, and varying levels of congressional interest and even executive branch interest in, uh, uh, in the case of Jimmy Carter. Um, so, yeah, there's a, there's, a cyc there's a cyclical aspect to many of these things. I think the Jimmy Carter story is a very interesting one and important one also in that it shows, you know, Jimmy Carter wanted openness, much like Harry Reid, uh, mm -hmm. into this topic. So he approached NASA. And um, I think that's where the similarities are. This politician um, kind of inspired or, or, you know, started program and how the military and NASA reacted. What they told Jimmy Carter, obviously, you know, what uh, Antonio was able to demonstrate in the article is that the Air Force behind the scenes was pushing for NASA to not do it. They're like, you know, mm -hmm. this isn't worth it. Just don't do it. Go away and uh, get out of it. And they did. And they did highlight the issue, which is a legitimate issue, is that, you know, if we don't do it, the UFO conspiracy people are going to be mad at us um, mm -hmm. and claim that we're just covering things up. If we do do it, then we're going to start to run into problems with the scientists that we work with in the scientific community. Um, mm -hmm. And that's the problem. So why do it at all? Because that just creates just so much problems. We're already, I think, uh, an organization, NASA, has always had resource issues. You know, they've always mm -hmm. been... Uh, you know, tasked with doing things that are just, they, they don't have the budget or the manpower to do. And that's right. kind of politics. Um, yeah. If I could, so, just to add a, a little bit yeah. of context to that, I mean, to zoom out from that story a little bit. So there's the moment where Carter talks about UFOs on the trail and then commits to looking at them. But if you go back just a couple of years, there's something called the church committee uh, in the Senate. 
And that was actually the precursor of the, mon of the modern, um, uh, essentially the, the Senate Intelligence uh, Committee, the permanent sort of select intelligence committee. So what the church committee was doing really was looking at intelligence abuses. So this was a period when things like MKUltra were coming to light and all of these other mm. sorts of the really dark corners of the intelligence world. Um, and, you know, it's been a little while since I've looked at this, but I want to say that was maybe around 76 or so. So just, just before kind of the Carter era. So that was a moment in American life where I think people were looking at the intelligence services in a slightly different way and had a slightly different um, sort of perspective on, on government and maybe a, a lack of trust in government as a whole. Um, the other interesting thing that was happening at the time was that, um, you know, the defense contractor giant uh, Lockheed Martin um, and its, its earlier form was in some financial trouble and at one point was sort of quasi-nationalized uh, almost. So that was a moment for the whole security apparatus to be pretty uncertain. Um, and there were a lot of people, I think, professionals in the national security world that were concerned about what Carter would do, um, you know, that he would overturn um, basically the way, the way that things were done. Um, and, uh, it's, it's, it's fascinating to go back and take a look at Carter's speech to the CIA when he was, uh, shortly after he was inaugurated because he's, he does it in this sort of gentle Carter way, but it's, it's a really challenging speech basically saying that, you know, there has to be reform. So, you know, it's, it's fascinating that there was a whole moment of questioning and reform, a sort of spirit of reform. And yet this issue just kind of ran into the brick wall, you know, nonetheless. Mm-hmm. And I'd recommend people read that article. I think it's a really important part uh, of everything going on. But I think it's probably some insight into what's been happening uh, in the background that we haven't seen also. That, in other mm -hmm. words, there are probably strong forces in the background completely opposed to transparency in this mm -hmm. arena and and pushing their, using their weight in, in ways that we don't see. Uh, one of the big mysteries you've brought up that we, I think a lot of us has talked about is the absence of Air Force uh, uh, involvement with any of what's been going on. There's, there's been very little. They've spoken to one issue uh, where they said they thought something that wasn't a drone, you know, in other words, saying their one case was a true unidentified. They also investigated the the f-18 FLIR videos uh to make sure that they were not you know released uh unlawfully or in in a manner that they shouldn't have been that's it though that's all we've heard they really haven't gotten involved at all on the surface mm -hmm. but you know uh who knows what sort of uh movement's been going on in the background yeah. And the interesting thing is, if you look at the kinds of, if you look at uh, Christopher Mellon's uh, wish list, so to speak, he, he's written a, a few pieces now, and he's got one where he really just kind of enumerates a bunch of different platforms and capabilities. And many of them are Air, Air Force capabilities explicitly. So, you know, it, it seems as if on the inside, there's a desire to tap into data sets and expertise that might be in the Air Force. And what we don't know is how cooperative the Air Force has been with that interest. If, if they're outright blocking it, or if maybe at this point they're cooperative, it's so quiet, there's kind of no way to go, no way to know. But yeah, as you point out, in that silence, it's, it's sort of a strange silence because clearly this is the domain that they're tasked with is protecting our airspace. So you would expect to see some leadership. To me, just as someone who kind of watches the interbranch rivalries and those sorts of issues from a policy perspective, it's surprising because they risk uh, ceding leadership to the Navy, which has always been one of their chief rivals. 
So it's sort of not a good look for them in a way that that the the go-to place for all of these things is always O and I. Um, you know, why is that the case? And you know, I think down the road there might be some budgetary considerations with that. Um, if if O and I proves itself to be the most innovative, but it's also recruiting because you know the young person that's interested in STEM and you know programming and all you know all these sort of technological things. You know, it might be O&I has the more exciting story to tell right now in, in terms of the work that they do than the Air Force does. So that bright kid is maybe going to think about a career in the Navy instead of the Air Force. So, yeah. So one of the pieces I wrote was sort of pointing that out and saying, hey, this is an opportunity actually to, to take some take the leadership reins and, and really contribute. Yeah, that is one aspect of this whole thing. That is supposedly what got Tom DeLong's foot in the door in that he approached the military, he says, you know, uh, to tell them, hey, you're not looking good to the kids, you know. Mm. Um, if you really want to attract the younger people, I think you really got to tackle some of these areas they're interested in, like UFOs. Mm. Um, unfortunately, that doesn't seem to be have, have been picked up. I think that's a great opportunity for TTSA, the entertainment side, to maybe work with the military to kind of, you know, mm. sex up their, their, um, their, how they're seen, mm. um, that hasn't happened, but I agree with you. That is a good angle. And maybe the Navy thought that was a good angle. I know in my experience, even some of the, uh, the NASA PR or some of the other science publicist people I've worked with like that angle, you know, mm. they're not afraid to go to the UFO route and use that as a, something to get people interested in. The scientists, of course, are, are much more hesitant to do so. But it's a good angle. The issue is, <clears throat> it seems as though the Navy has now started to change its tune a bit as far as transparency, because the last couple of, you know, uh, at least one of the messages, I think by Glassell, uh, this the Swedish researcher got was from the Navy and the Navy even <clears throat> was speaking to how a lot of their findings will be classified. And they even, you know, put in this mention of, of questioning whether Elizondo was part of uh, ATIP again, which is so uh -huh. weird because that's an established, I think a pretty well-established fact with firsthand, you know, witnesses, people who would know like, Harry Reid, who started, or the people who worked on the program. So it's almost like they're they're in their tune now, and that I'm a little worried that uh, the trend part of this thing is is maybe uh, getting in the mix. Yeah, it's certainly possible. I mean, I, I think an important thing to remember always with government and the military is that it's never monolithic. You know, people have different uh, ideas, attitudes, and there often are um kind of wrestling matches in the background if you will about whose ideas are going to prevail and so you know we may be seeing some shift in that where people who maybe prefer a quieter approach are are, are getting a little bit more of their way um it's very very difficult to say um i think overall though i mean you know in the last few weeks and months yes it does seem like there, there may be a bit of a shift but i think overall it's still in a fairly unprecedented place in terms of, you know, they have this request to um, uh, from the from the Senate Intelligence Committee. You know, the DNI, it seems, is going to have to, the Director of National Intelligence is going to have to speak on this issue. Um, another thing that I, I pointed out in that Air Force piece that does apply here too, 
Um, there was a curious thing. If you compared Christopher Mellon's blueprint with what ended up actually in the, the official language. So um, Mellon, I think, had a, like an 18-month timeline. It was considerably longer um, than the, the short timeline in, in the Senate Intelligence Committee. And a lot of people have asked, you know, is that enough time actually to do this job? And it makes me wonder that if there's a hearing someday, there's going to be a DNI that's you know sitting in front of them. And if he, if he or she doesn't have an adequate answer, the next question is going to be why? Who, who's holding things up, right? Wh why aren't we able to solve this problem that we know has been around at least 16 years if we just look at Nimitz? Um, and that puts some pressure because you don't want to be the person left holding the bag of, uh, of, of holding things up. So uh, because you're going to get some uncomfortable questions from the Senate and that has massive ramifications in terms of the budget and so on. So you're right in that like publicly and we as researchers and journalists and interested citizens, we may be getting less, but there's still an overall kind of chessboard that points to there being increased pressure um, that, I, that I think there's going to have to be some sort of a response to. Right. And I think that at least the public side of things, um, Rodrigo brings up a great point here. He says, I'm very impressed with the fact that the UFO issue hasn't become more politicized, actually. And mm -hmm. I think that's at the crux. And that's what I'm trying to argue right now is that I think that politician, no, nobody really knows the strength of the UFO lobby and the effect that it may or may not have. And mm -hmm. I think that's kind of the biggest issue in that, um, do they have to play politics to this or not? And do they see the needle move at all when they do make mm -hmm. comments or not? I'm guessing not. So for instance, with Marco Rubio answered that question uh, about, you know, the way he did about all of this saying that, you know, I, I kind of hope they are aliens because it's scary if it's Russian or Chinese, you know, did he get a, a big response to that answer or not? I'm guessing no, um, but that's the sort of thing that are, you know, people who feel like they're UFO activists, which I feel like a lot of the UFO community does, needs to make their voices heard because I think that there's a lot of people that, you know, a, a lot of UFO articles do really well in mainstream media. Mm -hmm. That shows there's people interested in reading the story, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they're interested and, you know, petitioning more transparency in this arena, we could get to a point where the military says, okay, we take UAP seriously. We're now telling you this is a real phenomenon. So there's something happening here, but mm -hmm. we've got it covered. We can't share with you everything we've discovered, but we've got it covered. End of story. I mean, that's the scenario it, I'm guessing that we're headed towards. And without the public, a strong public response, it's probably where we're going to go. Yeah, I think, I think that's a distinct possibility. I think you're right that, that there's, while these things are popular, you know, the stories get a lot of clicks and views and so on. That doesn't mean there's a UFO vote out there, um, you know, that, that a politician's really got to wrangle with. And the other thing to consider too, is we may be in just about the noisiest and most chaotic political environment in, in modern memory. Um, I mean, 2020 is, is a heck of a year. So if you're trying to register whether UFOs make a dent in the 20 other things, um, it's, it's hard to know that. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm also a bit skeptical, you know, of the idea that there's going to be a meaningful grassroots movement that's able to really pressure individual politicians. I think that can happen. I think a better strategy is to point out the obvious seriousness of the issue. So 
For example, in past statements, um, you know, the Pentagon spokesperson has said uh, they're trying to avoid uh, strategic surprise. So to me, when I hear a phrase like strategic surprise, that's a that's a primal scream in national security terms, because what that means is all of a sudden one day we wake up and we find out someone has a game changing technology and we missed it. Uh, and that means that, you know, billions of dollars of intelligence funding alone just to catch our, our rivals when they're developing new things uh, didn't work. Um, and then also we don't have that capability that someone else does. So again, before you even get into the kind of stranger aspect aspects of some of these cases, you know, we should be really concerned that we've got a potential strategic surprise scenario that's been left open for 16 years. That's a very long time to be surprised. So I think that, you know, the better argument to make is, you know, not so much that there's a, there's a huge vote out there that, you know, demands to, to get the truth, but rather like, this is an incredibly serious issue. It appears there's been no discernible policy. We have no real idea what the heck is going on. Um, so, you know, it's, it's incumbent to, to get some kind of a response, at least just to kind of, to know that, that, that strategic surprise is off the table. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think there's going to have to be a multiplicity of angles. Um, but yes, I agree with you that the, the UFO vote, it's, it's always important. I don't want to discount it because I mean, it can make an impact, but I, I think that it, that alone is not necessarily going to get the job done. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I mean, I think it's essentially, you know, what we've got is an admission of what we already knew, but at least it is public and out there. And, you know, we all know, and it, it makes sense that there would be these weird desks, you know, um, mm. people in intelligence agencies that are working on cases that are strange, um, that are anomalous, you know, which are the kind of the cross section of science where science comes into research, these sort mm. of things. Um, and I think that, you know, it's just we're moving to a world, hopefully, where it's at least okay to admit that. Yeah. But it's what we need to force, I think that is a harder sell and, you know, what we all want. And I think even I'm guessing what Chris Mellon was driving at was also to have a portion where they're also sharing with the public at least somewhat findings and giving an update. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I wrote a piece a while back about um, understanding that, that UFO or UAP are not one thing. They're at least four different things, right? So, you know, UFO or UAP, as it's often said, is just means it's something you can't identify in the sky. It's unidentified, right? So it's, it's categorically not a thing in of itself. It's something else. So it could be um, a, a natural phenomenon that's just, uh, you know, a mistaken observation. Uh, it could be um, an experimental aircraft, for example, one of ours. It could be a foreign adversary. Um, or there's that fourth category that everyone gets excited about, that it could be something truly strange and exotic. And so to me, the question is, well, what's the distribution, right? So how we know that at least some percentage of sightings are just people not understanding what they're seeing. Uh, no one's going to claim that's everything necessarily, um, but it's certainly not nothing. Um, so you kind of go down the list, and, and I think you have to have some comfort in being able to examine these different possibilities um, and really see what they are, especially because of the kind of drone proliferation and everything else that we discussed previously. We just don't have the luxury of living in a world where it's just planes. You know, we have new satellite technologies, all these new things. So yeah, I think it's, it's incumbent on us to be able to have a mature conversation when we see something in the sky we can't identify to figure it out as opposed to lapsing into the, you know, into the uncomfortable jokes and, you know, all the, all the rest of it.
Mm -hmm. So somebody asking will ask, why are they called UAP and not UFOs anymore? Which is a great question. I think what a lot of people don't realize, UFOs to a lot of the, the public, unfortunately, means aliens or right. alien spacecraft. And that's not what it means. I mean, unidentified flying objects. It was actually a term coined by the military uh, because they were using flying saucer, which obviously has some other connotations with it uh, and assumptions. Uh, but now, even though we moved to UFO for that reason, with all the baggage that the term UFO has, uh, scientists and serious researchers have migrated to this term UAP. I know that Nick Pope says they've been using it in the UK for quite a while, but I think it was actually started by NAR, uh, Nike, not NICAP, another group, NARCAP, uh, another organization uh, led by Dr. Richard Haynes, who was investigating pilot UFO cases. But uh, anyways, it was kind of a more acceptable term for the scientific community. I think it, to me, it was always kind of silly. When you have to explain what's a UAP, you're going to have to say a UFO. But I've learned from experience that the scientific community, if you use the term UFO, a lot of people will just turn off. So you've got to use this term UAP. And so that's kind of where we've evolved to. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that I think that's exactly right. I mean, I think the problem is that over time, whatever the new acronym is, it becomes just as laden with the baggage as the old acronym. There's just a little bit of a momentary pause as someone figures out what it actually means, where you've got an opportunity, um, you know, to get through some of that accumulated stigma and everything else. But I mean, I, I certainly can't speak for the scientific community, but like I'm scientifically trained. To me, it is silly too. I look at it as you know, clearly these are acronyms for essentially the same thing, something in the sky we can't identify. Um, you know, so, so let's, let's move on beyond that. But I think there's always these kind of PR repackaging and reimagining of the thing to try to, to get around the taboo. Mm -hmm. So in this new world where UAPs are acceptable, where it's, you know, it's, it's out there that the U S is looking into the matter and takes the matter seriously uh, I think what's interesting uh, as far as results is that at least now we have another country, another uh, secretary of defense in Japan, you know, a strong, strong ally and a strong world power um, now also saying, OK, the U.S. takes this seriously. We're, we're going to take it seriously, too. And I've instructed, you know, our military, our uh, security defense forces on how to deal with UAP. However, and this is a weird, however, and I really doubt it, to be honest. However, we've never had a UAP experience, but we'll definitely keep an eye out and we'll let you know if we do. So it's great that they're taking it seriously in this manner. It's very peculiar because I don't think I've ever heard a government military say they've never had a UAP situation. Um, many, many governments have said they've had many, if not you know, they've had some, if not many. What do you make of that? Boy, it is a really, really complicated context. So the, the first thing to, to kind of take a bigger picture view, right, of Japan. So um, unknown things in the sky are a really big deal in Japan for a lot of reasons. So um, in the 90s, for example, there were a series of North Korean missile tests um, that were that just completely shocked the country. It, it ended up instigating a huge number of intelligence and military reforms. It was this kind of wake up call that th they're they're in a somewhat vulnerable position. 
um, and, and can be potentially attacked. And today, the issue is mostly um, aerial incursions from China. So I think last year there was somewhere on the order of about a thousand aerial incursions, a little bit less than that in, in 2019. I would say 2020 is about on, on track for that. So this issue of like really knowing what's in the sky and what's going on is not just a fun kind of like UFO thing. It's, just, it's a survival imperative. Um, and the issue has come up several times at very high levels. So interestingly, in 2007 and, and 2015, um, the, the parliament in Japan, the Diet, actually uh, formally raised this question of what is the UFO policy, you know, has Japan ever encountered UFOs? And both times, someone at a ministerial level, so for us, like a cabinet level official, actually had to answer this question. Um, and yes, the answer was sort of strange. It was, uh, no, we haven't experienced any, but in the 2007 case, they also said there were no grounds to dismiss it either. So the door was kind of left open. Um, and then I think in subsequent years, it's become a little bit more of no, there hasn't been, um, you know, any, any particular UAP or UFO encounter, but, um, you know, but the government is looking at it. And then recently what changed was the uh, Minister of Defense, Kono, in, in 2020, uh, essentially pointed to the Pentagon video releases and said, you know, he actually even said, I personally don't believe in UFOs, but the DOD has released this video. So I'm paraphrasing now, but I'd like to talk to them and understand what they make of it, what the, what the analysis is. Um, and then from there, the question turned to just what the heck do you do if you encounter a UFO? Because the normal protocols would be, you know, if there's something coming into your airspace, which literally this is almost a daily occurrence that, that an aircraft aggressively flies into their airspace. Um, you know, you, you call it on radio and then there's an escalation of things, you know, you may shoot tracer rounds at it or whatever and try to force it to land. Well, should you do that with a UFO? And it sounds like a sort of silly question, but that, that has become precisely, um, you know, uh, the issue. Um, and so, yeah, a few weeks ago, I mean, rather famously now, um, it got to the point where Minister Kono actually spoke to Secretary of Defense Esper in Guam on this question. Um, and we don't quite know exactly what the nature of that conversation was, but it seems that the outcome in Japan is a new policy to, uh, you know, sort of photograph, take as many records as possible, sort of similaring, uh, similarly mirroring the UAPTF in some respects. So, uh, yeah, it's an incredibly strange um, story in terms of trying to understand where does this interest come from? You know, where where is it all going? Um, but it's been really, really fascinating to watch. Mm hmm. And it makes sense that they would want to partner with the United States, at least in uh, the conversation on the military side, which we've talked quite a bit about, which is to identify um, technologies, you know, uh, that are emerging technologies that uh, are being used like drones for these incursions. Um, and no doubt they would want some help with that, as much help as they can get, especially like you said, because they're in their precarious situation where they're having these, you know, rather heated kind of um, encounters with with China. Yeah, I mean, Japan in general is in a sort of at a strategic crossroads of trying to figure out, you know, do they try to keep to the alliance with the United States, which has been frankly shaky uh, in the last few years, um, uh, just with a general kind of um, um, retrenchment of of uh, just international interests, I guess, in the United States, there's really no polite way to put it. Um, do they try to go it on their own? Um, there are massive problems. It's important to remember too, that the constitution of Japan is kind of unique. And that article nine says that 
Uh, Japan pretty much forever renounces war as a means to settle international disputes, um, and that it can't constitutionally cannot develop a military that's capable of, of conducting war. It's, it's, it's intentionally supposed to be a, a self-defense only kind of construct. Now, over the years, that has changed, and it, and it's become uh, murky as to whether or not there's really an adherence to that. That's always a live, um, uh, really serious domestic uh, conversation in Japan about whether Japan should maybe even someday change that and actually have a military again. Um, so, it, you know, to get back to the strategic question, if the United, if they're not going to be with the United States and they're going to try to stand on their own, they need to like tr change the constitution, triple the defense budget. They need to develop all these capabilities that, that frankly, they really don't have. The third option, which is alarming to consider, but stranger things have happened, would be realigning with China. Um, and in fact, there was actually some concern about that after um, after the United States withdrew from uh, TPP, the uh, Trans-Pacific um, Trade Agreement. Um, Pr Prime Minister Abe at the time actually okayed uh, participation in a large Chinese uh, logistics uh, program, sort of signaling, it was sort of a warning shot basically to say that, you know, if, if the United States isn't serious about the alliance, well, maybe Japan will uh, will shift the equation. So, and all of that is going to be in the mind of Esper and Kono in a conversation like that in Guam. They're, they're going to be thinking primarily about the balance of power in East Asia, you know, not about UFOs. Mm -hmm. UFOs are going to be sort of a, a side issue. And what I, and I think many other people have been trying to figure out is, well, why exactly? Is it that Kono knows that, you know, twice in recent history, someone in his position has been asked about UFOs in parliament. And so he ought to have an answer. And that could be a reason why. Another answer might be, as we talked about before, you know, a, a, a good UFO program has to look at foreign capabilities. Maybe it's a way to try to better understand China's capabilities. You know, we, we don't know, but, but there's some sort of a strategic calculus there. Mm -hmm. Um, and I'm just waiting for a good reporter out there to to find out a little more about what happened in that conversation. Mm -hmm. um, Mick West has come up. People in the chat are saying they've noticed that you've gotten to some Twitter debates with him. Mick West mm -hmm. is a, I guess, a former or maybe even current um, game. He makes games, uh, video mm -hmm. games. So successful there. And he's also uh, kind of a skeptic. And mm -hmm. uh, he's been doing his own, um, and I don't mean this to put him down, but it's amateur, you know, kind of investigation into the FLIR uh, videos of which mm -hmm. he's not convinced that they're that strange. I guess people mm -hmm. are wondering, uh, what do you make of, of your conversations with him? Boy, that's a great question. So um, believe it or not, Mick was probably one of the first people I actually talked to, you know, on Skype when I was in investigating all of this stuff starting out. And we had a great conversation. I, I personally like Mick. At, at times, it may seem like our conversations are pretty sharp elbowed. But I think the reason for that is we both kind of come from an intellectual tradition that when you're debating, you need to be really clear and you're maybe less concerned about hurting the other person's feelings as you are about kind of laying out what the logic is. So I think that, you know, Mick's general approach of trying to take independent pieces of evidence and to ask questions of them um, it's fine. It's actually, it's, it's a useful way of, of trying to interrogate, you know, the data that we have available to us. There are some places where I, 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 I kind of depart from him in, in terms of his, his general approach. So I think, um, for my case, Mick's analysis gets a little bit shaky when he is trying to kind of say, well, what if the object was smaller than it seemed to be? Well, how would that impact 
the perception of the pilots. Well, unless there's a particular reason to think that was the case, some evidence that tells you that, then, well, what if it, well, you know, what if, right? You can, you can sort of drown in, in what if questions. And I have the same response to the questions about, you know, radar glitches and so on. I think we can actually look into that question, you know, if there were glitches. Is there any evidence that there was? And there's, you could build a theory of the case of what the bug would look like and kind of, um, you know, try, try to see if you can find anything to corroborate that. I think instead what's happening is, is Mick is, it, he, he often describes it this way. He's constructing a list of possible explanations and he's trying and he's evaluating how likely each one is. And clearly in his mind, something that's physics defying, you know, really unknown is at the absolute bottom of the list. N no debate with that. The problem though, is that when you use that to kind of say, well, it couldn't possibly have been this. And so therefore, you know, an, an incredibly unlikely series of events is more likely than this infinitesimally likely exotic craft thing. So there's some some issues in, in the logic there where I think you have to be a little bit more attentive to the record itself. But anyway, I hope that answers it. They're, they're, they're long discussions. I know they're exhausting sometimes to watch, but uh, but I will say this. They I help you- I get tagged on them. I, I'm sure you do. I sometimes do too. But as, as migraine inducing as they can sometimes be, they help you to understand the record better. They help you to understand exactly what the live questions are. I wrote my first FOIA based on a conversation with Mick because it became very clear there was a you know particular piece of evidence that if we had it, it would really be important. So, mm -hmm. you know, I, I think that uh, I would recommend that the UFO community look at Mick as an ally in disguise because he is going to fight your arguments as hard as he possibly can. Um, and and it, it's it's going to help you get to know the case better. So, yeah, I agree with that aspect of it. And in that sense, that's where debate can become helpful, but yeah. it also can waste your time, um, I think. And that's one of the biggest problems that I think that unfortunately, and, and you know, I, I think it's great that he gets the attention that I'm sure he's loving, but I think it's completely wasting so many people's times. I mean, I think he needs to create a list of questions for the experts. The problem with when you're examining something that you have very low expertise on, you don't know what you don't know. And um, it's especially frustrating when then you argue with the experts against what their expert opinion when you don't have that expertise. That's what gets me really frustrating. frustrating. Yeah. Yeah, I can, I can definitely understand that. I think those issues come up, um, you know, frankly, epistemic humility, you know, admitting what we don't know is, is a big issue. I think for many researchers from different traditions, I can say that as someone, you know, coming from an academic discipline, you, you find that among, you know, researchers is uh, not just journalists and, and people like Mick who are just really passionately interested in this. Um, so you, you do have to check that. Um, yeah, I mean, my, my, my only real complaint with Mick is that sometimes when I've asked him about the implications of, of his beliefs of, well, what does it tell us about our defense readiness, for example, or um, the state of, you know, of the military if this very easily resolved thing has not been resolved for 16 years and it has turned into multi-million dollar programs. Um, yeah. and, and that's something that, you know, typically when I bring that up, people will say something like, well, you know, the, the defense world spends so much money. What's a few million dollars? Well, if you do the math, it's, it's many, many school lunches, you know, money is money, right? So just because it's a small percentage of the budget doesn't mean that those resources, if Mick is right, and this is all, you know, a fool's errand that could have been used elsewhere. 
because what Mick tends to do is to say, no, I think the military is very smart and they sort of understand all of these issues and they in fact agree with me. And it's just kind of silly civilians, I think he said at one point that are inter interjecting themselves. I just don't think there's any factual basis for that. I think, um, I think that you have to really kind of reconcile with the implications of your views. So, but I think what he's trying to do is he's more interested in the debate, right? I mean, he, he wants to, yeah. you know, um, to kind of get in, into the fray intellectually. I think he's a little less concerned about the policy side of that. And frankly, that's fine. I mean, he doesn't need to be worried about that in order to make, you know, some kind of a contribution. The last thing maybe I'll, I'll say about Mick West and about kind of the exhausting aspect of it is, you know, I started writing about this subject this year um, in the late spring. So for me, a lot of this is new. So, you know, the benefit I get from the debate is it's a way for me to, to learn the case, really. Um, for some others who have gone through countless iterations of this, particularly the military witnesses, I don't blame them. It is a waste of their time. Um, but, you know, from time to time, you know, Mick and I do like to have our conversations, so to speak. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And you don't want to enter into a debate with someone like Mick without knowing your stuff. Or, um, like you said, I, I agree that to definitely a good way to get catch up to speed on definitely the minutia regarding yeah. uh, all of this, which is important to understand. Yeah. Uh, it's an opportunity to learn. I really sincerely mean is. that it's an opportunity to learn. And if you take it from that perspective, I think, it, I think it actually can be a useful thing. The key is just not, you know, in any kind of debate is getting really emotionally involved can be, you know, can be destructive as frustrating as all this stuff is. Mm -hmm. So, uh, the next, I mean, where we move on, I think, is what's interesting. And what's interesting is, you know, you're talking about how he talked about the silly civilians that are kind of coming in. But that's really not the focus of uh, what's so interesting about what's going on, because it is a government military uh, sort of interaction that we are observing, that we're, we're watching here with mm -hmm. uh, the Navy coming out and saying this is a real thing that we're paying attention to. The Air Force saying essentially no comment. Um, the Senate getting involved and saying, hey, if this is a real thing, then let us in on what the heck's going on here and create a central you know, location for this information to be um, um, examined. All of which, and, and a kind of that last point being a, a pretty uh, you know, important evolution of an mm -hmm. uh, to, you know, just that feat alone in being able to move past the stigma and to at least establish an organization to look at unknowns. Um, even if you're looking at it from the perspective of kind of what we've heard the press office kind of spin it as, is that we're looking at drones and other technologies. That's an important step. I mean, that's a good thing to have happen. But the next step is the Nimitz cases. So, you know, Nimitz is a case where they're admitting that this is an unidentified, despite all of their best efforts and their analysis, which we haven't seen by their experts um, as to why they think those videos demonstrate, you know, there's unidentified. And I'm sure they take into account radar data and witness testimony and other things like in that uh, executive summary that we've seen. But uh, and we'll get to that. But um so where do we go from here is what happens, I think, to those unidentifieds, uh, those cases like the Nimitz. Where does that data go? What's going to happen with that data? Really, I think the only mention of what may happen, Roger Glassell essentially asked that. 
of mm-hmm. uh, Susan Goff, I guess is how you say it, but uh, yep. D-O-D-P-I-O. And she says it'll remain classified, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's kind of the crux of the issue, really, what it comes down to. And uh, even in Phenomenon, which I got to see a screener, great film by James Fox. I can't wait for everybody to see it. It's coming out October 6th. Chris mm-hmm. Mellon makes the point that, you know, these are the interesting things. These are what we want to look at. This is what really the message should be, which is interesting to hear this from him, is that he feels the most important thing in all of this is that these unidentifieds are happening. We have a true, genuine mystery here. Mm-hmm. And that's the point. But that mystery, where does it go? In other words, okay, we've got this UAP group. They're going to look for potential uh, threats. and uh, But what happens to the Nimitz cases? Yeah, that's a, well, boy, that, there, there's so many aspects of that to look at, right? Of So what happens to a case like Nimitz in terms of public awareness of it is always going to be problematic because, I mean, even today, there, there are many people that assert that, you know, there's there's data sets produced by radar and other kinds of instruments that would back up, you know, witnesses, but we don't have access to them. We're basically, it's almost impossible to get access to those data sets because they would reveal, you know, key things about our, our collections capabilities, even though this event happened a long time ago. So those kinds of limits are always going to be there, right? So we shouldn't expect that we're going to get the, you know, the radar data or, or, or something of that nature. But at the same time, I think that there are ways to make productions of data that are responsible, but that are also helpful. So for example, at the moment, I don't think any of us know how many incidents have there been, how many of these uh, cases have even been examined. Um, we don't have a kind of a statistical account um, that you very easily could do. You, you could write up a report that would have tables that would tell you absolutely nothing about our radar capabilities or, or anything else, or even where these things happened, but it would at least give us a sense of the order of magnitude. You know, are we talking about something that happens once a year, once every five years or once a month? It'd be really helpful to know that. Um, are we seeing an increase in the number of these things or a decrease or is it flat? We don't know any of that right now. So I think from, from a policy perspective, I mean, we don't have that basic information that would tell us how significant of an issue is this really? Just how much is it happening? And I think that those sorts of things could actually very easily be addressed uh, in a way that's completely respectful of security concerns. So to me, that would be the first step. And then I think from there, we just have to see what the what the data actually is. Um, and you know, it's, if we are seeing a lot of incidents and they're increasing, and you know, the, the military is struggling to make sense of them, well, that, that might be an argument that the scientific community, the wider scientific community, needs to be more involved in this issue than they have been. So we'll have to proceed carefully bit by bit. Uh, but I don't think anyone should be looking for, you know, we're going to get the high resolution videos and the radar anytime soon. I, I, I think we've got to, to start a little bit more slowly. Um, but the good news is, is that I think it's very possible to make those steps. Mm-hmm. Now, <clears throat> you know, this document that we, you know, we're kind of tweeting about recently and, and we've mm-hmm. been talking about uh, that was leaked by George Knapp doesn't seem to get a whole lot of attention when it came out. Uh, I immediately jumped on it, wrote a couple articles about it because I thought it was extremely important and weird. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> in yeah. that we have this uh, alleged summary, um, you know, of the Nimitz situation uh, mm-hmm. that was leaked by George Knapp. He didn't give us much except to say that it was written by the military for the military, essentially. Um, everyone assumed. It was created by Bass, and I could understand that because I did too. When you read it, 
it mm-hmm. reads more like a non-military person wrote it. And some of the speculation in it is pretty uh, astounding. Well, we should know. probably explain that aside from the content of the document, it's the formatting of it too. So the formatting mm-hmm. is, doesn't, is doesn't match any kind of a, of a formal U.S. government product. Um, and yes, it, there's there's use of particular acronyms that don't appear, you know, in the the Pentagon dictionary and so on. Which normally, you know, in a formal product, they are quite careful to make sure that the vocabulary, you know, matches and all of that. So before you even get into the rather incredible account that you're reading, just the way the document looks tells you this isn't a regular, you know, military document. Mm-hmm. But Lou Elizondo at least has confirmed to me that it was military, um, written by the military for the military. Uh, and he uh, gave me the perception that it def- it was not Bass. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I asked Leslie Kane. She told me I'm not sure who wrote it, but she saw it. Uh, it was part of the information she saw when she helped write the New York Times article. Um, and then later she made a comment that it was part of the Bass files. So it was something they had, just not necessarily something they wrote. And then Tim McMillan, another investigator who's got some incredible sources, uh, says he's been told it wasn't it was an ONI document. So it was written by intelligence, which it does read to me more like an intelligence document than a military document. Right. But what it, it what it gives us is some interesting insight into, I guess, the thought process of whoever wrote it, um, whether that be intelligence, um, that you know, they were speculating along the lines of that, you know, perhaps this object. Uh, came out of a larger object that was out of the water uh, or under the water. I mean, some really strange kind of um, really out there kind of of possibilities that they were considering. I mean, uh, it's an interesting document. It is. And it's one, I mean, not to bring Mick up again, but one that I'm very familiar with, because when you start to talk about the details of what happened, it's one of the few documents that we have where you can actually go through it and kind of understand blow by blow and see the um, uh, a more kind of raw account from from the pilots, um, you know, exactly what they saw and when and, uh, and so on. And also it, it does a nice job of describing some of the different um, technological platforms that were involved, so the different radar systems and things like that. So that's that's how I'm familiar with it as just one of the better accounts that we have. So I think two other things maybe to mention about it is that it seemed it was written about five years after the event, as far as we know, um, I think around 2009. And yes, as Tim Tim McMillan said in his best understanding is that it was written by an ONI analyst, but in an unofficial capacity. So that kind of explains why it is not an official looking document. However, it was apparently some sort of a preliminary attempt to try to understand um, understand this incident. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's remarkable because it does assess that these were physically real objects. You know, they were not optical illusions or hologram systems or advanced countermeasures or many of the other things that, that come up. Um, and then as you say, yes, it makes some pretty interesting claims about the relationship between some of the things in the water and the things that were flying. Um, yeah, it's, 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 a, it, it's, a, it's a pretty incredible document. To me, what I find interesting is that um, that that apparently this process started with such an unofficial document, that that was ever involved in the process in the first place. Um, and that may speak to the kind of condition that the, you know, the UAP UFO program was at the time, that 
there really wasn't a well-funded effort to really, you know, formally study this, but rather someone kind of did their best to put together an analysis and, and kind of make the case that it was important. Um, that, that in itself is pretty striking to me. Yeah. So there is uh, somebody who's uh, Kevin Childress, uh, who I know has been around the UFO community for a very long time. Uh, he says he worked as a DOE special agent, Department of Energy. And mm -hmm. he said this is he's not surprised by this, the way the document looks at all. Uh, he says it's a standard deductive prose format used for investigation reports. Yeah, it, 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 it absolutely is. And I mean, when I look at it, you see, you know, it's got it's got kind of an executive summary type format where you've got key assessments on the front page. I mean, that's very much in line with what an intelligence product does. You know, and to your comment before about speculation, well, you know, oftentimes intelligence requires looking at things that you can't draw definitive conclusions, but nonetheless, you have to be able to at least make some working assumptions uh, about what's going on. So to me, it, it it was very much in keeping with that. It's just the first question was, well, it's not formal. And we knew that Bass was involved. So it was sort of plausible that perhaps a Bass contractor had uh, you know, written the document originally. But yeah, I mean, this is an example where the online discussion actually, when I think several researchers pooled their insights, it seems the picture has shifted a bit now that it's it's more definitively um, you know, an ONI product. The informality of it is really interesting too, because I think the, you know, if you look at the narrative and what happened with Nimitz, it was informal. The entire thing was, and it kind of speaks to uh, what Colonel John Alexander, who as an insider in Army intelligence had his own informal investigation regarding UFOs and UFO cover-ups. Conclusion was that government or military is extremely inept and mm -hmm. unable to deal with this issue. Um, and he's just kind of claimed that we bungled it and we ignore it. And mm -hmm. if you examine the Nimitz situation, given that document or witness testimony, that's kind of what we have here. Kevin Day, yeah. a radar operator uh, in charge, supervisor, you know, is seeing these anomalies for several days. And only after several days, finally, he says, can I get somebody to go take a look at these? They say, okay. And he's able to scramble, you know, get Fravor and the rest of the guys scrambled and, and they have the tic-tac uh, situation occur. Uh, Fravor gets back. Another guy, Underwood, I guess, uh, says, I'm going to go get that thing on camera. They're like, yeah, right. He does. Um, and then this document's written up in an informal matter. And I think that, you know, uh, Brian Bender with Politico has been making the argument. This this whole ATIP program is not as big as you guys think. It's very yes. <clears throat> It was. And he's right. This is something foisted upon the Pentagon by Harry Reid. It's not something they wanted to do on themselves. So all of this is almost informal. And in my experience looking at this topic, there's a history of that. In fact, all yeah. the Bigelow group, Eric Davis, Hal Putoff, they've all been trying to get the government in there to look at these things more seriously. And in order to do that, have a lot of these informal kind of where interested parties in the government are doing this, taking it upon themselves to really look into these things uh, as much as they can 
but not part of some kind of formal organized manner. Right. And, uh, you know, it, to me, that's pretty insightful into how the military has been dealing with all of this. Yeah. And, and, you know, it sounds strange because I think we, we tend to have this idea of American military power and intelligence powers. Absolute, absolute, you know, it's the best funded military in the world and, and it has exquisite capabilities to be sure it does. However, it gets a lot of things wrong, you know, or, or it fails to pay attention to important things. I mean, we have had, you know, significant intelligence failures in, in regular sorts of issues. So it's not at all surprising that in something strange and something that could be frankly harmful to someone's career, um, yeah, that there would be a, a, a lack of attention um, to it. Um, and I agree that there, there are a lot of troubling signs that that has been the case, that this has never been really handled all that formally, at least as far as we've been able to see. And that brings up the question we were talking about earlier of the, the pressure and the kind of questions that need to be raised. So it is not me saying that, um, that there's an issue of strategic surprise. It was the Pentagon spokesperson saying, this whole program is designed to prevent strategic surprise. Okay, if we're talking about strategic survive, we're talking about an existential threat, uh, potentially from a military perspective. So it just certainly does not follow that the way that you treat a potential existential matter is with a couple of intelligence people and you know it has no real clear reporting mechanism and no real strategy no real metrics that's just not how you handle a, a matter like that um and i think that that's something that we have to keep in mind as we're going forward is keep the perspective on this of if this really is something truly unknown it's, it's actually important to get to the bottom of it it's not just a fun kind of navel gazing thing um and the, the policy has to be you know commensurately serious um, and, and, and hopefully we'll see that. I mean, it seems like what's happening now is an, at least an attempt to do that. Um, and it remains to be seen, you know, how, how robust and how long lived that attempt is going to be. But I think a lot what? of that on us. And I think we've, we've talked about this before, but I think this is why this has gotten so far. And I do want to speak to this. Kevin Childress, the guy who worked uh, with DOE, says, you would only be allowed to investigate if it's in the scope of your responsibility. Yes. Agents don't have free reign to investigate whatever they want. True. However, Elizondo said, you know, um, it was something he was given permission to look at. Uh, not only that, when it comes to ONI intelligence, just to the point you just made, that would justify their involvement in that they're examining, you know, a mm -hmm. potential threat, um, yeah. an unidentified object. The concern was that there weren't mechanisms in place where Kevin Day shouldn't have to, after day five or six, you know, say, mm -hmm. hey, can we scramble something to look at this? There should have been procedures in place at day one we have this unknown, we need to check these out. Yeah, well, and, and getting back to the to the Japanese question, which is, you know, they're regularly dealing with aircraft trying to come into their territory and they have those protocols about how they respond. You get on the radio and eventually if it goes bad enough, long enough, you, you start shooting at it. Um, so it raises the question of, well, sh what should the rules of engagement been for Commander Fraber in that situation? I mean, he was in a, in a situation where he was met with something he could not identify and he, you know, under his own wherewithal, made the decision to try to get a better look at it. But, you know, maybe there ought to be some parameters on, on what you should do. I mean, maybe you shouldn't maneuver too violently or maybe you shouldn't, you know, um, do anything that may be threatening. I mean, it's, it sounds a little funny discussing it, but I mean, it, apparently it's a live question because it happened. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and these are all issues that, that have to be worked out. And one of my really growing concerns the longer that I've looked at this is that the taboo and the stigma interferes with those conversations that, 
it just sort of shuts down the thinking because everyone gets stuck at the level of, well, is this real? Is it aliens or is it, you know, whatever. And that makes you gloss over a bunch of really important technical questions about, well, what do you do when you're confronted with that situation? Um, because there are, you know, there's a lot of details you have to work through. And if you're always stuck at, is it aliens, you're never going to, to, to kind of get to those. Um, so I'm, I'm hoping the longer this goes too, the more, the community too is looking at things like drones and becoming more familiar with it. We're kind of, I think, all getting an education in this defense space and realizing, well, it's not as easy as just aliens or, you know, or whatever. Right. Because for instance, you know, this situation, it could be drones. And I, I would guess that is a lot of the thinking of like the Senate Intelligence Committee and some of the other higher ups are thinking, okay, what if those were weaponized drones that they were encountering in Nimitz? Then we totally bungled that situation. We would we left ourselves open to to damage. And of course, now we have just in the last few days, Iran flying a drone over the Nimitz and yeah. getting pictures of it. Uh, so Other we're clear that. Yeah. <laughs> So what if that drone was weaponized? I think you know we've considered drones to be toys for so long, and even mm. these incursions over these nuclear facilities, we've considered yes. them to be toys. That now people. Uh, this effort is really pushing people towards considering, hey, we need to take these all seriously. Yeah, you, you don't, a bad time to have a UFO stigma or taboo is when a weird drone is flying over a nuclear power plant and a guard says, I don't want to report it or I don't want to deal with it because I'm going to seem like I'm talking about UFOs. Because it's just in 2020, you know, we're, we're, we're living in a different world where that could actually be something quite serious that needs to be dealt with. And I mean, I think there's there's plenty of evidence that those issues have been, you know, have been looked at, but I'm not sure they've gone as far as perhaps they could have um, given the taboo. And it's an extremely important, important stream of reporting about that that I think is actually really underappreciated. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So and, and I guess that kind of comes around too is the future of this. Where is this headed? And I mm -hmm. guess, you know, that'll that's where we'll end up here. Uh, we'll end it because I, I would like your opinion and uh advice for people, which is that, you know, that's the big hole. That is the big hole that the military keeps looking at that uh, no doubt Senate intelligence takes seriously. The big mm -hmm. hole is, are we using this, is this taboo keeping us from taking a serious look at UA at drones and other potential technologies we're not aware of? And are, are we leaving ourselves open? I think that's what sold this UAP task force and, and all of this to happen. The big question is, um, if it does happen, and if they do fill that hole, thank goodness, because we're all going to be safer for that. Um, uh, our military people will all be safer for that. But uh, where does it go from here? What if we have an interest in some transparency regarding the research of real unidentifieds? Are those going to go in a trash bin? Or what's going to happen to those? Who's going to look at them? Um, you know, where do we go from here, especially if we, we are interested in these true unknowns that could pose, and Chris Mellon makes this point in Phenomena, could mm -hmm. pose a giant scientific breakthrough. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing, is that if there really is something, you know, truly exotic, unusual going on here, it's it's the biggest story, you know, ever, essentially, it's, it's incredibly important. So, you know, at the, at the, at a minimum, there would be a tremendous kind of opportunity cost for not pursuing something so remarkable. If, if there's reason to think that it's, 
it's really there and it's going on. So I think there's a couple of different answers. I think, I think at one level, it's what we talked about earlier in terms of um, setting up pressure for there to be reports that are maybe conservative in the information that they give out that many people in the community would like to see pictures and so on. Instead, you're going to get statistical tables. But I can tell you that kind of coming from the scientific community and a little bit more kind of policy circles, that will actually do more um, in a way because it will give you a picture that you can then point to and say, this is happening at a certain amount of regularity with a certain sort of trend. These are true unknowns. And we can kind of quantify a little bit of just what the issue actually is. Um, and then also it, it makes it easier to make the argument of, well, if the military hasn't solved a case like this in 16 years, what's to make us think they're going to solve it in the next three or five? Something isn't happening. So, and that, that something might be, for example, a relationship with the broader scientific community. It kind of gives an inroad to start making those arguments of, hey, if you want to solve this, and really you must solve it, given the strategic environment that we're in, you're going to need to bring in more people. And yes, it's going to be difficult for you to do that, but there's ways to, to go about it. So that's mm -hmm. one. Two is this is becoming, a, you know, it, it seems an international issue in the sense that at least the Japanese are looking at it. Um, we've heard some some comments from from Lou Elizondo, you know, mostly on, on social media, but nonetheless saying that an international strategy is something that, that TTSA is considering. It remains to be seen exactly what that would look like. But if we start to head into a world where there's a little bit more cooperation on these issues, and that, that's a, probably a whole other hour or two that we could do, um, that has a potential too for uh, for shifting the dynamic because it no longer becomes just an American security issue, but it becomes kind of a broader issue. Um, so I think there's you know there, there's multiple moving pieces here, and and again just for context, it's like we're what 39 days from the election. And so, you know, the question of who's going to sit in the director of national intelligence chair is very much an open question, um, let alone secretary of defense and, and all the rest. So there's a huge amount of kind of like political calculation that's going to happen in the next, I don't know, 40 to 50 days um, that's going to really have a major bearing on all of this stuff, too. So um, it kind of makes sense that things are a little murky, I think, at the moment. Um, and I would say... And, and it's murky, too, uh, what effect any administration change will have. We don't know um, right. how friendly or unfriendly, you know, any administration is towards this. Childress right. has another question I think that you might find interesting uh, or a comment. He says, my personal opinion is decades of deception or perhaps ineptitude have created massive systemic problems that pervade government and commerce beyond UFO. And I added the ineptitude. He says decades of de deception. But mm -hmm. yet, is this issue systemic? Um, maybe that's why major uh, campaigns like Mellon's are necessary. Yeah, um, I think, I, do, I don't know that I would necessarily say deception exactly, but I think that's basically right and that, that, that there are some systemic issues. So in fact, one of the projects I've been working on, um, I've been kind of doing an experiment to see is I've been kind of reviewing books from national security literature and history that have nothing to do with UFOs, but yet talk about UFOs. So for example, I was looking at the Iraq war and the intelligence issues there. And it's just seeing, because you see many of the similar kinds of problems of something that's been overlooked or it hasn't been taken seriously. And then all of a sudden it becomes a major problem and there's a kind of scramble to come up with a, an appropriate response. And normally you would think, you know, there's a, surely there must be rooms full of people who 
work on, you know, Iraqi security issues all day long. Well, maybe, but maybe not, right? So the, the history is inevitably more complicated. So actually, yeah, I do think there's some evidence that there's there's all kinds of areas that have been neglected, you know, particularly in the technology space. Um, I, I guess just to button this one up, I, I would recommend reading um, Christian Bros's uh, The Kill Chain. It's got kind of a rough title, but it, it's well worth your read. So it's from a former uh, senior staffer, kind of like a Mellon sort of figure, but in the, um, the Senate Armed Services Committee. And uh, he wrote an analysis of basically everything that's, that's wrong in, in kind of defense policy making right now. It's a scary read. Uh, it's, it's an extremely scary read. So yeah, in short, yeah, there's some reasons I think to be concerned in more than one policy area at the moment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's kind of funny. It, it just brings me back to John Alexander's points. Cause he's like, he's, he's shocked that people are, are not open to the idea that our military can be really kind of inept in, in this arena. Uh, whereas, you know, most people are give it a given that the government's a mess and everything, um, but they can't buy it. When it comes to UFOs, they think they're masterminds. In yes, deception. yeah, right. We we live in this head spinning contradiction, and and I mean, I think the reason is because there's something to that contradiction. Like sometimes at a policy level, things go cartoonishly wrong, where it's almost you can't believe how sort of stupid the decision making <laughs> is. But then on the other on the other hand, there are also plenty of capabilities that are truly. I mean, they're called sometimes exquisite capabilities. Um, meaning that they're so technologically complex, so advanced that they're, they're kind of mind boggling too. So we live in that contradiction as a country where we're capable of doing profound things and we're also capable of shooting ourselves in the foot. Um, you know, we do both regularly. Uh, and I think when it comes to the UFO issue, we're left asking, well, which is it? You know, it, did, did someone mastermind the best cover up of all time or, or are we kind of clueless here? Um, that's the question. Mm-hmm. Well, great. Uh, I think we're, we're pretty much out of time. So glad to have you back. Um, I would say I, I hopefully will have you back again in the future because I love our conversations. I uh, think that uh, it's I'm very happy that you're now writing about and focusing on this topic because your insights are, are very helpful. Thank you oh, so much. Th for thank you. I appreciate that. These are these are always great. So, yeah, this is awesome. I look forward to doing more. Yeah, so we'll have more Rojas reports coming up. And, uh, you know, I'm definitely going to be sticking to more of the policy, more of breaking down government and science uh, and the institutions, the mainstream institutions, and how not only how they are affected by all of this, but how, you know, those interested in moving the ball forward, uh, how they do so. So, for example, you know, uh, there's there's people like Nick Pope who have worked in government. Uh, I'll be interviewing him next week, and uh, we'll be talking similar sort of uh, topics. Uh, and he has insight from the MOD. I'll also have in a couple of weeks Kevin Knuth, and I think that's a really important conversation because he's a physics physicist. How does you know? How do we get this uh, the scientific community to take this more seriously? And the question that you and I were just talking about: How do we get Science, how do we get the data like the Nimitz case, the, the real unidentifieds, into the hands of scientists and mm -hmm. what scientists to do what with it? Those mm -hmm. sort of things, which is kind of where I think many of us would like all of this to evolve to. Mm -hmm. um, so those sort of discussions that we'll have. So Kevin will be in a couple of weeks and then in about three weeks we'll have James Fox, whose film The Phenomenon uh, launches on October 6th. 
and I highly, highly, highly recommend everybody watch it. It puts together a very compelling argument for for this phenomenon. <laughs> so it's got a good title. But uh, <laughs> I think it's going to be especially eye-opening for those people who are really getting interested in this topic now to show that, you know, there's a, there's a rich history of military interest and involvement in this field um, mm -hmm. and witnessing things and uh, demonstrates kind of how they've been tackling that over the years. So uh, stay tuned to the Rojas reports. Like I said, the live versions like this one will be open for everybody and then it will go into the archives, uh, which you just have to push that join button to, to see. And then of course, uh, if you join on Patreon as the audio level, you'll get those as an audio um, also. So thank you again, Adam. And awesome. until next time, we'll talk to you later. All right. Thanks. Thanks, everybody. Let me play one of my cool outro videos here now. Here we go.